Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Margie Patel has seen it all. She's at Wells Fargo, and you need to lean forward and listen carefully as she discusses this odd quiet. Margie, the quiet to me signals something. We have the artificiality of negative yields. We have some new definition of the zero bound. We've got Japan and true gridlock and fixed income linked together this odd economics to the quiet within the bond market. Well, on the one hand, you have really all the the central banks for many decades now pushing down towards the zero interest rates and very much wanting to keep them there. And on the other hand, you have inflation suddenly appearing for the first time in, you know, really over a decade. And it seems undeniable and it seems as if it's becoming more widespread. So it's a lull before the storm, before the Fed in particular needs to act and do something. Well, the Fed's going to need to act and do something. Are you predicting they are? There's a lot of people out there. Let's go with the ancient term inflationista saying we will see price down yield up. Are you managing for that outcome? Uh, only in the sense that in my fixed income holdings, I've gravitated over the last couple years actually to better quality because they won't be as badly impacted if we have a move up in treasury rates. Margie. Is the quiet because there really is nothing going on, or is it simply because right now the bond purchases are overwhelming uh, market reactions, market pricing that would normally take place? Well, yes, we have the Fed meeting. We also have the quiet before the the, um, the budget resolution to raise a debt limit. Uh, that's a real hurdle. Uh, nothing is going to happen before then. And uh, most people, I think, are now expecting the Fed to do something in the way of tapering. And it's interesting. We all know they're going to do it. So it should all be priced in the marketplace. But when they begin to do something, it'll be interesting to see if the market uh, has a surprise after all. I guess, Margie, what I'm trying to ask is, what is the direct effect on markets of the $120 billion monthly bond purchases by the Federal Reserve. Is there a direct price reaction in the market as a response from this that will change directly, not from signaling, but directly when they start to reduce that amount? Well, I think if they reduce the amount of mortgage purchases, that would be the most important factor, uh, because I think the Fed's actions of basically just hoovering up all the mortgage securities has kept mortgage rates maybe even artificially low. So if they stop buying as many mortgages, would that cause the rate, the mortgage rate financing for homeowners to actually go up? Again, that would not be what the Fed would want to see, but uh, they may, may not have a choice. So that's what I'm thinking would be something that I'm going to watch and how the banks react to uh, if they reduce the uh, the mortgage purchases. Margie, one thing that we've been talking about this week on this incredibly exciting week for price action has been the incredible divergence in the potential views for the economic outlook going forward and how that's one aspect. John keeps repeating this. Tell, you, tell him where uh, that is and then tell him where the prices are. It's sort of unclear. How do you sort of game out this dramatic uncertainty in economic outlooks going forward when it comes to a market call? 
Well, it looks as if the market itself, the economy, is very, very solid grounds. Uh, it looks as if all sectors are really moving. The only problem is um, higher prices for inputs and shortage of labor, and those aren't really bad problems to have. And uh, corporations aren't over-levered, consumers aren't over-levered. So it looks like the economy is in great shape and should be able to take the market higher. <clears throat> it's just a question of uh, how does it react to when the Fed begins to tippy-toe and do something for tapering. Margie, we had on Anna Hahn of mm -hmm. Wells Fargo the other day. I don't know if you read her literature. She's just brilliant. Yale physics and just really mm -hmm. gets it uh, done. I was thunderstruck by the concision of the Wells Fargo equity team on modeling together an earnings call with multiple compression to optimism now and relative optimism out a year, if anybody can look out that far. Do you share that confidence of concision that we see off your equity desk? Um, I don't know if I have the confidence, but I also believe that. Uh, I think that we should see uh, price-earnings ratios stay the same or get compressed, even though earnings are rising up. So that would leave the market still able to move ahead for those companies that uh, have sustainable earnings. So I think that says the market should move up, even if it's more modest than we've had over the last year, and more widespread, not just a handful of stocks lately that have driven the market over the last, say, six months. Is Microsoft a one-off, or do you see continued use of cash for share buyback over and above options? Uh, companies, I think, have way more cash than they can deploy, and it depends a little bit on what kind of a tax bill. Will that change their behavior, whether they pay dividends, buy back stock, or make acquisitions? So, again, we have to see how they react, but they have lots of cash to do whatever they want. Margie, when you came on the show earlier, you said that we have seen the death of the credit cycle as we know it, based on the response that we have mm -hmm. seen from policymakers. And I do wonder, if that's the case, why not just invest in the absolute riskiest debt securities and then make a call on some of these interest rate sensitive uh, stocks like Microsoft, thinking that they will be supported by these low yield policies for the foreseeable future. Well, I think the riskiest parts of the market are priced uh, with very, very little premium for anything to go wrong. Um, if there's a hiccup in the economy or too much inflation or the Fed overreacts, that's a sector that will be impacted. Uh, we've had a tremendous <clears throat> amount of financing from the bottom tier, particularly, say, in the loan market, private equity market. Those are the weak parts. Plus, emerging markets always my candidate for when uh, markets start to crumble. Can you play EM now? I mean, which way do you play EM? You mentioned the crumble word. We don't talk crumble on Friday, Margie, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, I think there's uh, more reason to be cautious. Uh, we've seen China's growth decelerate. We've seen some uh, cracks in the financial system with uh, a large uh, real estate developing firm look as if it's going to need some kind of restructuring. And that's really negative for all emerging markets, I think. And uh, so I think that that's an area that I'm, I'm still a little cautious out. There hasn't been much risk premium. I think the U.S. still looks like the best place. Uh, we should have the growth. Also, continental Europe doesn't look bad. They should have 2 or 3% in real growth. So that's not bad. Margie, great to catch up with you. It always is. Margie Patel there, Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Andrew Slimman joins us now, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Andrew, number one question in the equity market that I hear, can we get a second run at those cyclicals going into New Year? Andrew, can we? I think so. I think we're seeing the mirror image of this spring, which was 
you know, everyone thought rates were going to 2%. The economy was strong and the bond market rolled over, cyclicals rolled over, energy prices rolled over. And now all the and then the economic data this summer validated that. And now we're seeing weak economic data, but rates are starting to go up. Yield curve is starting to re-steepen. The semis are breaking out to the upside. So I think the financial markets are telling the reverse of this spring, which is reacceleration in the fourth quarter. So the answer to your question is yes. Help me out here. I've seen more collective gloom, Andrew, in the last six, seven, eight days than I've seen in ages. Give me the measure on the slime and wall of worry right now. Where's the, <laughs> where's the needle this morning? Well, I, I am watching the bond market, and I still say, last time I was on your show, I'll be wrong if rates go back to 1%, but I'm noticing, despite this economic data, yields are slowly creeping creeping higher. They're north of 130, and energy prices slowly creeping higher. Yep. So that's that's that tells me that my th- fourth quarter thesis is not wrong, but I will be wrong if this all rolls over. So that's what I'm that's what I'm worried about. Andrew, can we actually get any economic signal from bond markets that are so distorted or di- distorted is perhaps the fair word, uh, influenced by central bank buying not only in the United States, but also overseas? No question. No question. Look, I think the bond, I, you know, look, rate where rates are, stocks actually should be higher, in my opinion, on a valuation basis. But I think the stock market gets the gig that the Fed's been buying bonds and rates are artificially low. So I think actually the market is pricing in higher rates uh, than, than this. And just to be clear, if rates go up, I'm not so sure it's great for the cap-weighted S&P, which benefits from this low-rate environment, given the fact that it's full of, you know, these long-dated growth stocks. So, Andrew, I hear you. You think we can get another run at these cyclicals. You think Treasury yields are starting to inflect hard. We might have seen the bottom. That's what you're suggesting this morning. Many people think, though, Andrew, that we need a catalyst similar to the one we got in early November last year when we got that efficacy data for the vaccines. Do you think we need that kind of catalyst going into year end to get that second run? Well, I think that you're going to see the economic data reaccelerate off the third quarter. That's kind of the view of, of, uh, of analysts. I think that you're going to get a very good earnings season. I don't see any companies pre-announced. And, you know, you were talking about supply constraints. Uh, but, you know, I just was at an industrial conference and heard a lot of co- industrial companies say their backlogs are very strong into next year. And they're very confident about their earnings outlook. So I think, you know, stronger economic data, stronger retail sales, maybe the COVID variant comes down a bit. Um, and uh, you've got your you've got the makings of a, of a good fourth quarter. That Q4 step up, Andrew, is such a good point. TK, Michael Faroli over at JP Morgan came out yesterday morning. Downgrade to Q3, upgrade to Q4. Yeah, yeah. They're looking yeah. for this step up, Q3, I'm, Q4 into next year. John, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I'm sorry, there's 47 flavors of opinions out there. I'm watching what corporations are doing. Canadian National off, Canadian Pacific, just out. Uh, they say they've got ambitious value creation. That's the pixie dust I'm seeing company to company. Andrew, wrap it up for us. Speak to that. This reacceleration, this reacceleration into next year. Is that what you're looking for? Yes. And I think the opportunity set is not in the S&P. It's in all those stocks that are below the, the, the largest companies that really are off. Uh, off their highs because they're more cyclically exposed. I think emerging markets off a high. 
I would play those areas versus the market, the S&P cap weighted. Interesting. Andrew, thank you. Andrew Sliman, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Daniel Jurgen, congratulations with IAS. And of course, I can't say enough about the new map. Uh, Daniel, I want to rip up the script and I want you to comment, as you did in the new map, on the entrepreneurial global reach of Elon Musk. I am blown away by SpaceX and the idea of putting four civilians up there. How does a guy like you, from the prize to the new new map, frame Elon Musk? I think, uh, thank you, Tom. I think he uh, obviously ranks as one of the greatest kind of technocrat, technocratic entrepreneurs because so much of this is about pushing the technology and doing two things, SpaceX and the Tesla. And uh, both of them are, um, you know, Tesla, of course, has really transformed the automobile industry, the whole shift towards electric vehicles. And putting space, opening the era of space tourism is amazing. It's a, you know, market, more market driven than, uh, than classic. So uh, he's, uh, he's a, a unique figure. Does the gloom crew that's out there, Daniel, that you fought against for decades, does the gloom crew misjudge the commanding heights of modern technology? Well, I think they tend to underestimate um, how things, how rapidly things can change. I mean, they, they, they percolate along out, out of sight for 10 or 15 years while people work on things, and then suddenly it becomes apparent. I mean, uh, whether, I mean, just to take energy, shale was 20 years in the making. Uh, it took about 40 years for solar to really come down in cost. And, uh, but when it happens, it, it really brings big changes. And that's uh, some of what we're seeing today. Well, Daniel, talking about shale, there's a question of whether the death of shale or peak shale has been overstated in the aftermath of the pandemic. A lot of people saying that that was what we have been seeing in terms of the lack of getting oil production back online. Do you think that perhaps people have under, well, underestimated how quickly it could get brought back? Well, this is an example of where you see how markets and companies adapt because we really have seen a stabilization of shale. It's growing again. And remember, the U.S. is still the largest producer of oil and gas uh, in, in the world. Uh, the nature of the industry has changed, and there's what I call a second shale revolution, which is about returning cash to investors. And so you're not seeing this, you know, with prices where they are today. This was a few years ago. You would have seen the drilling rigs really going up in number. But uh, now there's kind of modulation, and uh, in general, around the world a kind of caution about rushing into new investment. But at a time when you're seeing strong demand, uh, either at the end of this year or early next year, we'll see world oil demand higher than it was in 2019. So how does this undermine this whole pledge to get to net zero? Well, I think that, I mean, the pledges to net zero, that's one of the themes in, in, the, in the epilogue, the new part of uh, the new map, the embrace of net zero carbon by 2050. Some are trying to push it to 2030. Some say if you try too hard, you're going to have a macroeconomic shock, a serious macroeconomic shock. I think the direction is clear. How you get there uh, in a world that still is 80% fossil fuels, uh, the roadmap isn't clear. And the answers will really be not rhetoric, not PowerPoints, but they'll come from technology. 
I'll not mince words about it, folks. The appendix to the new map is the read of the weekend. Buy the book. You can read the book in the next week, but this weekend, read the appendix as Daniel Jurgen gets out front on the South China Sea. As you do, Professor Jurgen, you go back in our history. You lectured at the War College. You cited Mahan, the idea of sea power is a projection. How do submarines project in the South China Sea? This is right in the heart of the whole uh, issue, the nuclear submarines for Australia. This is about the contest for the South China Sea. Is it an open waterway or is it Chinese territory? And the Chinese used that phrase yesterday. They talk about a Cold War mentality. Uh, this is, you know, you're kind of seeing uh, there's a, in many ways, Biden has broken with Trump, but not on China policy. And indeed, he's trying to mobilize, uh, you know, a consortium of countries. And then these nuclear submarines are exactly about the uh, question of free passage through the South China Sea and the fact uh, of this kind of growing polarization between China, which you see in technology, you see it in trade, and you certainly see it militarily. How does this complicate, Dan, the negotiations on trying to get to a greener place globally, a conversation China needs to be part of? Absolutely. After all, China is 30 percent of emissions. And uh, the at the end of the Biden administration, uh, of the Obama administration, he and Xi came to a meeting of minds, and the Chinese have adopted this 2060 goal for net zero carbon. And I'll tell you, that's reverberating throughout China in terms of what's on the topic for people. But the Chinese have said, you cannot compartmentalize this. The U.S. is saying, we can mm -hmm. compartmentalize it from all the other issues. And uh, we've seen recently the Chinese said, no, no, we've yeah. got to deal with the other questions as well. So I don't think it can be separated uh, from everything else that's happening right now. Lisa, this is like the Miss America pageant, except we're doing it with Daniel Jurgen. I'm going to announce my book of the year next week. I've already hinted at it. So let's have Miss America come out one last time on last year's book of year. Dan Jurgen, the new map, my book of the year oh last gosh. year. It is absolutely a tour de force from the prize to commanding eyes to quest and on to the must read, the summation of where we are right now. And again, the appendix on the South China Sea is Dan Jurgen goes all Robert D. Kaplan. Professor Jurgen, thank you so much. Thank See you in Davos. This is with our question, our interview of the month on what we're seeing in the South China Sea. Because of time, we're going to cut right to the chase with James Stravitas, his book of my summer, 2034. When you and Ackerman wrote your fantastic book on the fears and instabilities of 2034, Admiral Stravitas, did you understand submarines would be part of 2034 or 2021? Uh, they are part of both, Tom, as you fully know and appreciate, and in particular, nuclear submarines. Important to understand the difference here. A diesel submarine is like a hybrid car. It's kind of, uh, it, it runs on a battery some of the time, but yeah. a lot of the time it has to run on it's a like, diesel. Makes it's like a the duck boats that go across the Charles River. Continue. You got it. You got it. And so the nuclear submarines are just the coin of the realm. They're the we would say about infantry, the, the queen of the battlefield, not as feminine, mm -hmm. but rather queen is in a chess piece. It can go anywhere, do anything, 
stay underwater forever and it's utterly lethal. Explain to me the alliance here developing in the South China Sea out 10 years and out to 2034. If I'm a Chinese, it is to, to me it is multiple players with multiple silent things going at 31 miles an hour through the water. It is, and it is because China claims the South China Sea, a vast body of water, Tom. It's half the size of the continental United States. They claim it essentially as territorial waters. It's a preposterous claim. It's been debunked under international law and in the courts. But they continue to claim it. They build artificial islands. They want control of those waters. They're full of hydrocarbons. Therefore, U.S., Great Britain, France, Germany, Australia, many other nations are challenging these claims, as they should, and operating extensively in what they all consider to be international waters. Admiral, give us a sense of um, you know you know I think most I probably speak for most folks where you know I, you know I'm obviously just awed by the nuclear submarine fleet, but I don't really know much about it in part because you just don't see them. But we know how important they are. What is China's capability in terms of submarine warfare? It's much smaller than that of the United States, particularly on the nuclear side. So. U.S. has 68 nuclear submarines, Paul. Fourteen of them are ballistic missiles that shoot our intercontinental ballistic missiles, the Trident, and 54 are attack submarines. What we're talking about, uh, Australia is starting to operate. China only has 12 nuclear submarines, six ballistic and six attack boats. They have lots and lots of diesels for coastal protection, but in terms of nuclear, they're a fraction of the United States. So this deal with Australia, why do you think we pursued this deal with Australia? Is this suggesting that we're trying to, um, you know, kind of diversify some of the responsibility for that part of the world to some other nations? It does. Um, Let's face it. We are always stronger together. We're always better uh, working with allies, partners and friends. And the more capability, particularly our treaty allies have, in other words, Australia and the United States are sworn to go to each other's defense in combat. Australia, by the way, has been with us in every war we have fought since they became a nation. Uh, So it's always to our advantage to see them with the top-end kit, and that's what's happening here. James Trevitas, I want to take you out of Hollywood with Sean Connery staring gruffly (laughs) out of the periscope or all we know of World War II. A guy named Rickover with a childhood that is out of the movies goes out to Pearl Harbor to salvage the USS California after Pearl Harbor, goes through World War II, and he lands in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I should point out with my father, who was like 21 right? okay. years old at Great. the time. And, um, you know, I, I, I look, James Trevitas, at what Rickover did. You've got Rickover Boat 1, 1984. You've got the new Virginia-class Rickover. Explain to our audience worldwide the biggest misperception we have of Virginia-class submarines. Um, I think we misperceive the amount of ordnance, the amount of torpedoes and vertical launch Tomahawk missiles they can carry. I think most folks think these are small ships somehow just kind of sneaking around under the water. These are the same size as a big Arleigh Burke destroyer. These are 10,000-ton vessels. They just happen to be under the water. So I think a misperception is that these boats – 
don't carry a lot of uh, firepower. They can attack the land. Yeah. They can attack other submarines. They can attack shipping. Mm-hmm. They are highly capable offensive. I got like eight questions. Paul Sweeney's got 12 <laughs> questions. So I'll give you one question to sell your book. You need to sell some more units before. Look for the movie, guys. Fourth of July, 2025. <laughs> 2034, the Chinese respond to the Americans a number of times. And there's, an, you know, the plot, there's some Indians involved is as well. Admiral Stavridis, how do the Chinese respond to the announcement in events of the week? Um, they are deeply distressed and angered, and um, this is part of how nations can sleepwalk into a war by misperceiving what the other side is doing. So this only, unfortunately, lends credence to the, the cautionary tale, 2034, a novel of the next punchline here, World War. He doesn't need PR. He could just he sell just it himself. <laughs> James Trevisus, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> Author of 2034. And can I note that Elliot Ackerman, who co-wrote this thing with Trevisus, uh, has, without question, my essay of the moment in Foreign Affairs magazine. I'm okay. Against. It is heart-wrenching. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.